Thanks, Fawns. Welcome to the Gospel Hour with Dawn. Now, I hope you have your Bibles handy because I, I tend to give references from the Bible. And if you don't understand or don't follow what I'm saying, you can at least look in the Bibles and, and double check uh, what, what I'm saying. Now, I'm going to talk about the topic, church affiliation. I've got here about 13 questions that I'm going to attempt to answer. So here we go. Here's the first question. What is the true Christian church? The word church means assembly or congregation or called out ones. In a broad sense, the church of Christ is the combined worldwide body of those who profess to believe in Christ. In a more exact sense, the Christian church is the combined body of true and faithful followers of Christ worldwide. In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, it says this, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So a Christian is a follower. A follower of Christ, you could call a Christian. Figuratively speaking, the Church of Christ is the body of Christ as well as the bride of Christ. I'm reading now in Ephesians chapter 1 and beginning to read at verse 20. It says, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So you can see here that Christ is the head of the church. And the church is considered, figuratively speaking, his body. So only those who are submissive to the head of the church, who would be the Lord Jesus Christ, make up the true body and bride of Christ. Now, in another place, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, it says this. It's referring to, to the church as the body of Christ again. It says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. See, the church is called the body of Christ. In the same book, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 24, we read this. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And later on it mentions, this is a great mystery I speak concerning Christ and the church. Well, here's a reference to the church being the wife or the bride of Christ. Now, if you would read Revelation 19 verse 7 and Revelation 22 verse 17, you would also see in those passages that the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. In the human body, only those body parts that are subject to the impulses of the head 
are vitally connected to it. Likewise, only those people who are subject to the Lord Jesus Christ as their head, their ruler, their king, their Lord, only they are members of Christ's body. And again, Christ's body is the church. Also, the church is called the bride of Christ, but in a spiritual sense. Even as a wife is the bride of her husband in a legal and physical sense. In marriage, a wife who refuses to submit to her husband is not inwardly and or physically connecting with him, although still legally and outwardly connected. In other words, they're connected in name. The wife will take on the husband's name. So she belongs to him in name. Well, likewise, if a professing believer refuses to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, he or she is not connecting with him inwardly and spiritually, although he or she may be connecting to him in name or in profession. That person is currently not a member of Christ's spiritual inward body. In other words, that that person is not a member of Christ's church spiritually, inwardly, and in fact. He is only outwardly joined to him. All who disobey the Lord Jesus are only professing believers and not really joined to him so long as they remain disobedient. So, to be a professing believer is not enough to be saved. We must be an actual believer and show our belief by our obedience and submission to Christ. So that's the true church. The true church is made up of those who are uh, faithful to Christ and obedient to him. In another sense, we could say the true church is comprised of saints. Now, what is a saint? A saint is a holy one. It means The word literally means um, a holy person. So a saint is not only a holy person, but one who's set apart and devoted to God. Christ's church consists of those all over the world who believe in Christ as their Savior, their Lord, and their King. This belief in Him, though, is the kind that involves supreme devotion to Him and total obedience to His every known command and precept. In the mind of Christ, obedience to Him proves faith in Him. And He even says that in Luke chapter 6, Verse 47, quote, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Which I say. So it's more than words are needed in order to be truly connected to Christ, more than just professing faith in Christ. The true church consists of the spiritual kingdom of Christ also. Not only saints, but it's made up of the spiritual kingdom of Christ. As the following verses will prove, I'm turning now to Mark chapter 1, 
in verse 14, it says, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's what Christ preached. And saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. So, if we're going to teach the gospel, we need to teach people to enter the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God? It is wherever Christ is received as king in the heart. That's what it means to be born again. It means to receive Christ as your king, your supreme ruler and your supreme authority. Now, I'm turning to Luke chapter 17. Again, it talks about the true kingdom of God or the true church of God. And I'm in Luke 17, verse 20. And when he had demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here, or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Now, it says the kingdom of God does not come with observation. That means with outward show. The kingdom of God is not a visible thing that comes with outward signs or uh, visuals, so to speak. It's an inward thing because it says the kingdom of God is within you. In other words, it's the kingdom of God is not external or political necessarily, it, but its power and its realm is within the soul of man. It's an internal and spiritual kingdom. But remember, it does have its, ex its exterior uh, elements as well. Because if you go down to verse 24, it says, For as the lightning that lighteth out of the one part of heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. And that's definitely an outward, visible um, proof of God's kingdom. So the kingdom of God does have its future and external side to it, according to verse 24 there. Here's another good verse. It's in Colossians chapter 1. Verse 13, and this again is proving that the church is comprised of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing. It says in Colossians 1.13, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. See, a born-again person is one who's been translated into the kingdom of God's son. And that word translated means conveyed or removed from one place to another. Before conversion, we are in the kingdom of darkness. We live in sin and do what we feel like doing. But once we become a believer in Christ, we're translated out of the kingdom of darkness and we're placed into a new kingdom, the kingdom of God's dear Son, the kingdom of Christ. In Romans... 14 verse 17 the apostle paul reminds us again that the church is made up of the kingdom of god because it says 
for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So the kingdom of God, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the company of the saints, the people of God, that's who the true Christian church is made up of. It has nothing to do really with a building. Christ's church is made up of individuals, and it's made up of individuals who are scattered all over the world. Many of these saints or believers may have no one closely located to them to meet with and to gather with in person. This means that a sincere Christian who obeys God and cannot find a faithful local group to support and to fellowship with due to his fidelity to Christ and his fidelity to biblical truth, may still be a true and vital member of the church of Christ or the kingdom of Christ. Being alone due to circumstances beyond our control does not mean we are outside of God's church. So that's the first question. What is the true Christian church? Second question, where can you find a true and faithful local church? Well, the answer, wherever two or more people associate together and jointly, and they jointly commit to know and obey and serve Christ and to love one another with the Bible alone as their supreme standard. That is where a true Christian local church exists. Wherever people associate together and jointly commit to know and follow and serve Christ. That's where the true church is. And we read about that in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now, what does it mean to gather in his name? Well, it means to gather by his authority or in his behalf. Or it means to gather for the purpose of fulfilling his purposes and and uh, and carrying out his interests. That's what it means to gather in the name of Christ. So these few believers may meet in a building, a home, under a shelter, or under the open sky. But one faithful Christian who is standing alone for Christ with no one to fellowship with or to converse with, that person is also a real and important member of Christ's church. For sure, we ought to strive to fellowship with other committed believers if we can find them in our locality. As faithful Christians, we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. And that's found in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. It does say to not forsake the assembling of ourselves. We all need edification from strong believers. And we all need to edify other believers if we are walking in the Spirit. The word edify means to build up in the faith. So we need to be built up in the faith from the help of others 
And then we need to help others and build them up in the faith as much as we're able to. So we need to receive help as well as give help. And that's why we shouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. With with who, though? It's with saints. It's with those who are committed to the kingdom of God. It's with true believers and followers of Christ. That's who we need to fellowship with. But if we cannot find other seekers of truth or other committed believers to fellowship with and to pray with, then we are not guilty of forsaking the assembling of committed Christians. We cannot forsake that which does not exist in our area. In other words, it is with saints and with lovers of truth that we must aim to connect with and associate with. We must not company with or connect spiritually with those who are persistent sinners. And you can read about that in Ephesians 5, verse 11. It says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So we should not be fellowshipping or having a spiritual connection with those who are spiritually uh, out of fellowship with with Christ. And I'm turning now to 2 Corinthians. There's another good verse on this very issue that we should separate from, from unbelievers or from shallow, sinful, persistent sinners who call themselves believers. We, sh- we should fellowship. We should separate from these people because of what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. It says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? See, they don't mix. Light and darkness don't mix. And then it says, And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? You see how opposite these, these individuals are. And then it says, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye... Ye, the church, are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Sons of daughters, spiritually that is and so that's a clear command that we need to also separate from professing believers who are persisting in known or open sin god will judge us in the last day based upon our true purposes based upon also our true endeavors. You can read about that in Psalm 28, verse 4. And also, he's going to judge us in the last day based upon our works. And in Matthew 16, 27, says that very thing, that God is going to judge us according to our works. I'm reading verse 27 in Matthew chapter 16. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his holy angels, and then 
he shall reward every man according to his works. His works means his performance. It means his doings, his actions. We're going to be judged according to our actions. And also, we're going to be judged in the last day according to our willingness to serve. You see, God looks at the heart. If you mean to it in, and or intend to do God's will, but because of circumstances, you cannot actually carry out what you're intending to do, then God sees you as okay. God, God is pleased with that because your heart is right. And there's a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12, that says that. I'm, gonna, I'm quoting now. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. End quote. And he's talking in reference to giving. God is pleased when you give according to your ability, in other words. So in searching for a sound church, it is not buildings we must, we must search for. Instead, we need to search for people of faith and faithfulness, for people who love and obey sound doctrine, for people who are receptive to biblical truth and willing to improve their walk with the Lord. That's what we should be seeking for when we're seeking to find a good and sound local church. It has nothing to do, really, with the building. Everything to do with the kind of people in it. So that's the answer that I am able to give, uh, as I'm able to, of, of course, uh, based on the Bible, to this question, where can you find a true and faithful church? Now, here's the third question. Does any Christian church or organization on earth have the last word on what to believe and what to practice? The answer, I believe, is no. There's no church on earth has the last word on what to believe and practice. Now, by that, I'm not saying don't listen to your pastors or your church leaders. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying they don't have the final authority. Because remember, when you die, you're not going to stand before your pastor or before the pope or before your priest or before your spiritual leader or before your husband or before your wife. You are going to stand before your creator, your supreme judge, God Almighty. So we got to get our religion and our thoughts and our opinions from him. He's the one that's going to be our judge. So Christ's true, true church is built upon the words of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the commands of Christ, and the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. And this is clearly taught in, in, in many scriptures. In 1 Corinthians it says, For there is no other foundation but one foundation, which is Christ. It says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. In Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 20, it says that the church is built upon the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and also upon the teachings of the apostles. I'll read it. It says, Now therefore, I'm in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but 
fellow, fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord. By the way, the church is also likened to a building or a temple. And then it says, in whom ye are all, um, in whom also you are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So the true church is made up of those people in whom the Spirit of God inhabits, in whom the Spirit of God indwells. That's the true church. But here it says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles, prophets, and and the yeah the found and and of course Jesus Christ. So is it them? No, it's it's their writings. And um, so the and there are other verses that will show that Jesus Christ is the is the the one upon which the church is to be built. Not any institution or organization that's been around for a thousand years or two thousand years. The one and only true Christian church is built upon the apostles' doctrine, which are, of course, the pure teachings of Christ. And the apostles' doctrine, it mentions that in Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 2, and verse 41, it says this, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them, unto them is referring to the church, unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So they continued steadfastly in the teachings of the apostles. Where do you get those? Well, those are found in the Holy Bible. The words and doctrines of Christ and of the apostles are declared perfectly and flawlessly in the preserved Holy Scriptures, which in English are the authorized King, King James Version. These inspired scriptures, containing 66 books, are the final authority for faith and practice for all people, and for all of time. No church organization, no group of Bible scholars, and no man on earth is more authoritative than the words of the Holy Bible. Of course, this presupposes, or this implies, I should say, that we ought to read the Bible. And most people who claim or think they know the Bible sometimes don't in some points. So we need to be careful and pay attention to the words of the Bible because those are the words that are going to judge us in the last day because those words are the words of Christ. Now, what about the church fathers? Shouldn't we trust them? Which ones should we trust out of all the church fathers? The most 
reliable church fathers are not Polycarp, Origen, Augustine, Chrysostom, Tertullian, Athanasius, I could mention Ignatius of, of Antioch, past popes, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, John Wesley. These are not the most reliable church fathers. Did you know that all these men differed to some extent in some points of doctrine? Not in all points. And some of the differences are not major. And some of these people that I just named are pretty much off track. Like the past popes are really off track. Augustine is off track quite a bit. And so is Origen. And uh, some of these others I'm not too familiar. And and uh, some of these people have some some pretty bad doctrine. But, um, but a lot of them are very similar too. So all these men differ to some extent in some points of doctrine. None of their writings are as inspired by God as the Holy Bible. So that's important to know. We need to become people of the book, not people of the Wesleyan persuasion or of Calvin or Luther or whoever your hero is, uh, John MacArthur of today, maybe. And we, we've got to not be followers of these men. We've got to be followers of the book. And I would dare say people like John MacArthur would agree that, yeah, you got to follow the Bible. But even though a lot of these men say that, they really don't follow the Bible in, uh, in some important points. Now, instead, who are the most reliable church fathers? The most reliable church fathers are the apostles. Peter, James, John, Matthew, Jude, the apostle Paul, who was born out of due time, so to speak, and others who penned the holy scriptures. Luke would be one of the others. And, and these are the, 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 the most reliable church fathers. But let us keep in mind that it is their writings the apostles' writings and the prophets' writings that are authoritative, not necessarily their lives or the way they lived. Peter's sacred writings are inspired by God and to be followed perfectly, but not necessarily his every decision. For Peter made a very good declaration in Matthew 16, 16. It says, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But, you know, just a few verses down the road, it says this, Then Peter took him, speaking of Jesus, and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Because Jesus just said he's going to, He's going to suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and from the scribes, and, and he's going to be killed. And Peter said, no, Lord, we're not going to let him kill you. And then look what uh, he said. It says in verse 23, But he turned and said unto Peter, the Lord Jesus said this to Peter, quote, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. So, 
Peter, who was quick to speak, said something very good. He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he was absolutely right. But later on, he said, Lord, no, we're, we're not going to let anybody take you and kill you, and, and you're not going to go to the cross, in other words. And uh, Jesus rebuked him. So you see how he made a mistake there, a big mistake, when he when he said that. Well, the apostle Peter uh, did other mistakes. He also denied Jesus when the soldiers were arraigning him. And I call it a mistake. It's more of a sin. He, he, he denied Christ, which was sinful. And of course, he repented of that. And again, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 to 4, we read that Paul withstood Peter because he was a bad example at that time also. So, Peter is most certainly not the rock upon which Christ's church is built. Now, his writings were inspired, but not necessarily his life or his example the only rock of the church is Christ. And he's the only sure foundation, as many scriptures uh, point out. The most reliable church fathers to whom we should pay close attention and respect most are those apostles and disciples of Christ who, was, who were sent out by him to preach. And this is what Jesus said to the 70 that he sent out to preach in Luke chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus said this, He that heareth you, you disciples, and I believe there were apostles mixed in there, because he sent out the 70. He says, He that heareth you, heareth me. And he that despiseth you, despiseth me. And he that despiseth me, despiseth him that sent me. End quote. So, it was the words of these people that we must follow, not necessarily their actions. And to despise the words of Scripture and to lean upon the words of men instead of Scripture, that would be, in essence, a despising of Christ himself. So, we, we have to stick to the Word of God. And you, you read that again in uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. And Jesus said, and he, now he's speaking of the 12. He says, he that receiveth you, you 12 apostles, receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. So to receive the words of scripture is in essence to receive Christ and his words. Affiliation with the words of Christ, the apostles of Christ, and the spirit of Christ is more to be chosen than affiliation with the best local church in town. Subjection to Christ and to his preserved words is more to be chosen than subjection to any organized church or any prominent pastor or any Bible scholar, or any respected group of men, or any modern Bible version. If your modern Bible version conflicts with the King James Version, 
the solution is to stick with the real one, the the King James, the preserved one. And uh, these words kind of prove that. I'm reading now in Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. See, to deny Christ, how do we deny Christ? It's by denying his teachings. And his teachings are found perfectly in our old English Bible. Here's another good verse. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Okay, whosoever there shall be ashamed of me and of my words. If you are ashamed of the words found in your old English Bible, the King James, then guess what? You're kind of ashamed of Christ. That's how serious this, this issue is. So that's the answer, the best I could give, to that third question. And that third question is, does any church organization on earth have the last word on what to do and what to believe and what to practice? The answer is no. No church. It's the Bible that must have the, the last word. Number four. Should I aim to be part of a local church? I believe the answer is yes. We should all seek to be part of a local church wherein the leaders and the members purpose to cleave to God and to obey his words. We need the church because we need Christ and we need his teachings. And that is the job of the church, to present Christ, to teach about Christ, and to, and to uh, teach the doctrines of Christ. That's the whole purpose of the church. So yes, that's why we need the church. We need the influence of spirit-gifted men and the influence of true saints. You can read about that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 16. It mentions that God or Christ gave gifts unto the church. And who are these gifts? They're the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, teachers. These are the gifts to the church. Being a member of a Bible-believing and Bible-practicing church offers instruction, accountability, encouragement, comfort, reproof. It offers correction, spiritual protection, prayer support, and more. It even offers church suppers sometimes. So, so yeah, we should be part of a local church or at least aim to be part of a faithful body of believers. Everyone who wants to be part of God's kingdom in heaven must choose to support and promote and value God's kingdom on earth. And God's kingdom on earth is the church of Christ. God will judge us in the last day based upon our works and our ultimate intentions. If we are willing to join and commit to a faithful local church as a means of serving and glorifying Christ, then God will be pleased with our willingness if all else is right. God's plan 
for saving and sanctifying souls is through the instrumentality of sound local churches that are faithful to Christ. And you'll read about that in Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. So yes, local church affiliation is very important, but not the affiliation with those groups that accept, tolerate, or encourage false doctrine or persevering sinners. Those churches can be a danger. So should I aim to be part of a local church? The answer is yes, provided it's a faithful one. And how are you going to find out a faithful church? Well, you're going to have to open your Bible. You're going to have to read, and you're going to have to follow not only your Bible, but your conscience. And, of course, make sure your conscience is being well instructed. How do you instruct your conscience? You instruct it with the words of truth, which are found in the Bible. They're found perfectly in the Bible. You may hear the words of truth from your parents or from your spouse or from another believer, but ultimately it must be consistent with the words of God in Scripture. So that was question number four. Should I aim to be part of a local church? Yes. Number five, do I absolutely need to be a member of a particular local church to be in God's favor? I believe the answer is no. Was Adam in fellowship with God when first created and prior to having Eve as his wife and helper? Yes, he was. He was in fellowship with God before he met Eve. This proves that we can be in fellowship with God, even though we have no human companions. When John was exiled, John the Apostle, when he was exiled on the island of Patmos, was he in fellowship with God? Absolutely. Was he meeting with people in a church gathering at the time? Probably not. How about the Apostle Paul when he was in prison? Was he attending church services while he was in prison? No, most likely not. But while in prison, he yearned to serve Christ, speak for him, and fellowship with other Christians. He definitely sought that out, and he was able to do that. He also sang songs, as, as they do in church gatherings. But he was singing, of course, in prison. Was Daniel able to go to church when in the lion's den? How about Jonah when he was in the belly of the fish? Was he meeting in church with other believers when he was in that belly for three days and three nights? How about when Jeremiah was cast into a pit for daring to speak truth to his nation? Was he able to attend church or find good fellowship in that pit? Jeremiah felt alone as God's prophet during much of his life. You can read about that in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1. There were not many believers at that time when Je Jeremiah was preaching. Elijah felt all alone. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10. And so did David. David felt like his close friends were abandoning him. And that's in Psalm 38, verse 11. So you can find comfort in the fact that all these great men of God had times wherein they were not much 
in fellowship with other people. How about the Apostle Paul? It says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, that he was deserted by his friends in Asia. See also where he said this, All men forsook me, notwithstanding the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. And Paul said that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. So, walking alone with God may be what providence has for us at this time. So it's not the worst thing in the world. You can still be in favor with God, even though you are not affiliated with a local church. Now remember, your heart must be to find believers and to want to fellowship with believers. That's the heart of a true Christian, a, a true believer. Now, um, I also I, I do want to. No, I think I'll, I'll mention that a little later. Here's the next question: What kind of church should a Christian join? I believe the answer is this: We should only join and support a local church that is habitually Bible believing and Bible obeying. We should only join with those who, to our knowledge aim and strive to serve and obey God to the best of their ability and the best of their understanding. If a church or its members depart from God's words in doctrine or in practice, they ought to comply and receive biblical reproof from whatever source it comes from. They also ought to admit their wrong. They ought to repent as is needed. And they ought to make things right. And if they don't, then that church is committed to dis disobeying God. And then it becomes a danger to us. There are no perfect local churches in the sense that none have a perfectly consistent record of entire obedience to God. But, there are small groups of people, or a few people, that endeavor and aim overall to be perfectly obedient to God. That's their general course. That's the rule of their life, is obedience to Christ. There are those people on earth. That's what you call a Christian, a faithful Christian. And those people exist. But when these saints fail, these true saints, these committed saints that are meeting together, when they fail to be obedient, they usually aim to correct their failure and to amend their ways. They basically say, I am so sorry. Um, uh, I will aim not to do that again. That's, that's going to happen in your life if you're a committed Christian because life has its temptations and, um, and trials. And sometimes we're not as much in love with God as we ought to be. And those moments come to us. And when we find ourselves in those moments, we ought to simply acknowledge it, confess it to whom we, to whoever we uh, offended, and then make amends and make things right. Thomas Jefferson said this uh, in one of his books. 
It's, he says this, quote, It is more honorable to repair a wrong than to persist in it. End quote. I just thought that was good. Number seven, what kind of church should I separate from? Any teacher or local church that persists in teaching pernicious error should be shunned and avoided. Some bad errors are these. Unconditional eternal security. If they teach that, that's an error. I believe that's a doctrine of demons. Unconditional eternal security. The Old Testament scriptures are not for today. Another doctrine of devils. Divorce is sometimes okay. That's another doctrine of devils. That'll destroy the family. Destroy your walk with God. Husbands and wives have equal authority in the home or in their marriage. The answer is, no, that's not true. That's another doctrine of devils. The KJV or the King James Version is a flawed book. It has errors. Not true. There are no significant and real errors in the King James. Maybe printing errors. There might be differences in spelling of words. Those are not errors or not necessarily errors. Pastors wearing jeans in pulpits. That's a serious problem because that shows irreverence and it bespeaks of levity. And I wonder if those pastors would wear jeans to their mother's funeral. But they wear them in church. We are meeting with God Almighty in church, and I believe we need to do everything that is conducive to our reverencing of God Almighty and our worship of Him. He is the greatest being in the universe, and we are meeting with Him. And and uh, so we ought to dress appropriately for these for these times. And here's another doctrine of devils. And uh, I know people may have a problem with this, but it's real. The idea that we are born with a sinful nature. That is not scriptural. And that, I believe, is a horrendous doctrine. It is totally inconsistent with common sense. And so that's these are just some of the errors that are serious. They're pernicious. They're going to destroy you, and they will most likely, if you really hold to them in practice, they will probably send you to hell. So these are the kinds of churches we must separate from. Now, I want to make this. This is something I was going to say a while ago. I'm going to say it now at this point. For someone who is living totally a sinful life, they're heathen, they don't know anything about Christianity, They've got problems with alcohol or drugs or whatever, with profanity. And they they don't know anything about Christianity. For them to go to where they are, to a corrupt church, would be at least a step in the right direction. And God may honor that. Okay? So, some of these corrupt churches may still do some good, and I do believe they do. However... For somebody who knows the Bible and follows the Bible, and they know what the Bible teach, teaches, and then they go to a church that undermines that book, they are going down spiritually. They're not moving toward Christ. 
they're backsliding or they're now accepting ideas that offend Almighty God. Well, they're, they're backsliding. They're going down the wrong, in the wrong direction. So if you're moving in the right direction, praise God. But if you're moving away from God, and actually, if you compare the churches of today in 2023 with the churches of 1970, 1960, the churches as a whole have really backslidden. I mean, big time to a high, high degree. So backsliding is 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 not good. It will lead us. It is actually turning away from God. In Hebrews, it says to take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So we must not depart from the living God. So that was question number seven. What kind of church should I separate from? Any church that teaches bad errors or it it uh, accepts and tolerates open sinners, that church should be should be shunned. And uh, there's a good verse in Matthew that kind of supports that. In Matthew chapter 15 and verse 14. It says this, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. That's in Matthew 15. So you see how we must not follow blind leaders. In Titus, also chapter 3, verse 10, it says, A man that is an heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject. And there's other verses in Revelation chapter 18, verse 4. It says, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partaker of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. So here it says, Come out of her. And that her speaks of Babylon, which almost every church in America I'm not saying every church, almost every church, especially the Catholic Church, is definitely tied in with the spirit of Babylon and the doctrines, so many doctrines come from Babylon. One of them would be Easter celebration and the other one would be the so-called the, the modern-day uh, Christmas celebration. These come from Babylon, but there are so many other things that come from Babylon. And I do believe the idea that we're born sinful comes from the uh, Manichaeans who were Gnostics. And they taught that matter was evil. And Jesus often, and if Second John and First John often, combat the errors of Gnosticism. Well, Gnosticism is the idea that matter is evil. That's why Jesus called himself not only the Son of God often, he called himself the Son of Man. That means Jesus Christ was a human being, a real man, just like you and I, who are men. He was a man. That means he came from the line of Adam. He came from the line of Abraham 
from the line of David. Were these people born sinful? Adam? Definitely Adam was not born sinful because he was created, and he was created innocent. How about uh, Abraham? Was he born with a sinful nature? The answer is no. And we have to believe that because Jesus comes from the line of Abraham and David and Mary. All these people were born innocent. Remember, sin is not a material substance. It's not a chromosome. It's not something that can be passed down genetically. It's a Sin is a choice. And it is a choice that can be made only when you know, in your mind, the difference between good and evil, between good and bad. And that's uh, there's a good definition of sin in James chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. A, an infant does not know to do good. Therefore, an infant does not have sin. An infant, Jesus said of the little children, let them suffer them to come unto me, for of such are the kingdom of God. In other words, children are innocent. And God's wrath is not hovering upon a, an innocent child. And I, I think that's a, a, a horrendous doctrine. And it's absurd. It's not reasonable. But it's also not biblical. There's probably about four or five verses that you can use to twist and make to bend them to fit that, that idea. But uh, a closer look will, will, will show that, no, you really can't use those verses. In other words, they they cannot be they're not really supporting the idea that we're born sinful, and that came on this idea that we're born sinful came came on by Augustine, who was living in the four hundreds. So the early church, and he's the one that developed that doctrine. From all sources I've read, they all say Augustine developed the kind the concept that we're born sinful, and a lot of us follow Augustine, uh, and we got to be careful. We got to follow the Bible. So okay, that's. Number seven, what kind of church should I separate from? Bad churches. Number eight, is it proper or wise for a person to walk alone with God and without a local church affiliation? Well, I kind of answered this, but I want to deal with it a little bit more. I believe the answer is yes. In some cases, it is proper to walk alone with God and without any church affiliation. I think in some cases that's proper. Sometimes church affiliation may do more harm than good. It is possible to come together not for the better, but for the worse. And it, those words are quoted from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you're coming together not for the better, before the worse. In other words, the more you guys meet together, the worse you're becoming as Christians. You're leaving the way the ways of God. That's why Paul wrote the letter of First Corinthians. It was to correct the problems that existed in the churches at Corinth. God wants us to avoid sinful professing believers, and you can read about that in First or Second Timothy, rather, Second Timothy chapter three. Verse 1 to 6, it says there, 
from such turn away. And it mentions a whole bunch of sins. And it says from those who commit those sins, from such turn away. Unfortunately, most of the churches in America today are asylums for sinners. Now, they don't promote every sin. They definitely fight some sins. There's no doubt about that. But they also promote others or they tolerate others and accept other sins. And churches must practice church discipline. They must aim to keep their people um, faithful to God and true to the scriptures. That is the job of a pastor. It is not only to preach on Sunday morning, but it's also to visit and to give personal attention to those members that attend his church and to try to perfect them in their understanding of God's word and in their duty to God. I know of some churches that support wives leaving their husbands due to so-called abuse. But the Bible is clear, quote, let not the wife depart from her husband. It says that very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. God considers a person who departs from his or her spouse to be an unbelieving one. It says that in verse chapter 7, and verse 15 of Corinthians. It says, If the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Uh, I think I read that perfectly, but I'm not positive. I'm going to read it again. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. Now, he when he says God has called us to peace, he's not saying, yeah, well, okay, we want peace, so you may as well separate. I don't think that's what it's saying. It's saying God has called us to peace. In other words, stay in your marriage. That's the way to have peace. You, you, you're married to somebody who is a, a real annoyance to you. The way to have peace is treat that person the way you promised you would treat them on your wedding day. Cleave to them. Love them. If you're the wife, submit to your husband. If you're the husband, love her as Christ loves the church. Love her soul more than anything. These are duties that married people promise to each other. And so when it says God hath called us to peace, he's not saying separate. He's saying stay together. Staying together will create far more peace in your heart and peace with God if you stay in your marriage that has that in your mind is a difficult marriage actually people today are so fickle that nobody can handle hardship anymore everybody quits and uh, we have a nation of quitters everybody quits whatever they promise to do or they intend to do and they quit and we must never quit on this on serving god so a church that supports marital separation for any cause is an anti-family church. It's an antichrist church. Because of so many faithless churches, we live in a day when spouses are more faithful to their divorce decrees than they are to their marriage vows. Isn't that sad? Your divorce decree is probably was decreed from hell. 
It came from communists who run the courts nowadays. That's probably where your divorce decree came from. It came from the leftists and the communists and the Jesuits. That's where your divorce decree came from and from Satan. But your marriage vow, that was made in heaven because you promised before God to stay with that person. Well, anyway, yeah, sometimes some churches, if you remain in them, you may lose your family. And that's how bad the churches are. They've become asylums, meeting places for sinners, or you could call them social clubs. And, and that's not proper. That's not the purpose of the church. Number nine, is a person who walks alone and has no church affiliation due to his commandment or his commitment to the words of Christ, is that person still a member of Christ's true church? And I, and again, I'm asking the same basic kind of question. The answer is yes. A faithful Christian man or woman who can find no local church to affiliate with and submit to is most assuredly a member of the invisible universal church of Christ. This person is a part of the kingdom of God, even though he or she is not a member of any local church, but willing to be. See, that's the key. We need to always be willing to be part of a true and faithful church. And if you're not willing to be to be part of a church, then you have to look at your heart. And there's a good prayer in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We need to we need to search our hearts in all matters these days. Number 10, is it right and kind to warn others about false teachings, false teachers, and corrupt churches? The answer is yes. The Bible in Philippians chapter 3, it says, Beware of dogs. Beware of evildoers. That means you should be aware of what is out there. And uh, in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, there's several places where Paul is saying, beware of Alexander the coppersmith, he says, who did me much harm. So it's okay to name names if they are influential and if their doctrines are being uh, taught publicly, then it's okay to name names. But the best thing is to try to talk to these people in person to try to help them to think straight and, and do do the right thing. So... It is proper to warn others about false teachers. The Lord Jesus warned the Jews that he was preaching to about the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was warning of their influence because they had a bad influence. Number 11, I have only a few more questions. Is it right to judge actions or beliefs of others? And the answer is yes. It is right to judge the actions and beliefs of others. But we should judge our own selves first and judge our own selves most strictly. And when I say judge, I mean critique or evaluate. It's okay to evaluate other people, to critique them, critique their writings. Are they really saying the truth? We have to be discriminating in what we allow into our souls. Just like people are discriminating in what they allow for food in their stomach, 
well, we must be discriminating even more so of, of the doctrines that are being fed us. We must be careful not to imbibe false doctrine. So yes, we need to judge and evaluate, but especially ourselves and be most strict with ourselves. Number 12, is it a sin to join or financially support a church that teaches one clearly injurious precept? I say as a rule, yes. We must avoid bad teachers. The Bible says, let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. It only takes one poison to destroy your life physically. And it may only take one poisonous doctrine or one poisonous opinion to lead you down the wrong road or to lead somebody else down the wrong road. So if a church teaches and gives out some poison as far as doctrine is concerned, uh, yeah, I would not support that church financially or support it with my, with my attendance. Number 13, is no church affiliation better than affiliating with a compromising or sin-tolerating church? Again, I think you know the answer to this. The answer is yes. It is no church affiliation is better than being affiliated with a bad church. Walking with God in perfect obedience to His will is the key. That's the main thing. That's what God commands, right? He says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, understanding, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the standard. And that's a command. And we're able to do that. That's the main thing. No man can go wrong if he strives to be perfectly and entirely submissive to God's word. If a church pressures or encourages us to sacrifice moral or doctrinal principle, then that church is a bad influence. For instance, if a church approves of, and I want to mention a whole bunch of things here, I'm not trying to, spo I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. I'm just trying to be faithful because I know that if we don't listen to these things, we don't change accordingly, we're going to go to hell. People are, are going to go into hell. And, uh, and we're going to lose our country faster than we realize. But anyway, a, if a church approves of remarriage after divorce, they're in the, the wrong. If a church approves of women preachers, they're in the wrong. Approves of women wearing pants at any time, they're wrong. They should wear dresses and feminine attire. If a church approves of divorce in cases of abuse, or adultery, and I don't care what kind of abuse or what kind of adultery. The answer is there's no grounds for divorce. None. And that church is doing damage to the cause of Christ. If any true church approves of modern Bible versions, they are weaning people away from the King James and therefore creating doubt and questions rather than conviction. So no. I would not attend a church if it used the NIV or the New King James Version. Stick with the King James. How about women worshiping without a head covering? That's a sin. All women who attend church without a head covering are committing a sin. Read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
How about a church that okay is okay with playing the lottery or social drinking or wives disobeying husbands or the or insubordination to church elders? Any church that does these things, these churches are sinful and they are opposing God in some way, in some degree. Maybe not in everything, but in some things. In these things, they are opposing God. It's better to take a stand for righteousness and against sin, even if it means losing your church, losing your friends, your family, your freedom, your property, your wife, or your life. And that's the teaching of Scripture. They loved not their life unto the death, it says. That's the way we're going to overcome is if we love Christ more than physical life. Here's a good verse. I want to end with this verse. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus spoke these words. And when he says cannot be my disciple, he really means cannot be a Christian, cannot be in my favor. Only disciples of Christ are part of the church of Christ. Only the followers of Christ are part of the church of Christ. So here I want to say this, follow and affiliate with Christ and his words more than with any church or any Bible teacher. Thank you so much for listening. God, God bless you.